0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report with me, Norman Swan, coming to you from Gadigal land of the Eora nation.
0: And me, Tegan Taylor on Jagara and Turrbal land. Today, hacking your genes to cure previously uncurable diseases.
1: Why doctors need to start asking about stress when it comes to your heartbeat and why yoga could be an effective addition to treatment. A mystery about stroke. The risk is going down in the over 55s and up in younger people, at least in the Anglo population. Why is it so?
0: And skin checks have become part of many people's healthcare routines, but there are concerns that diagnostic tools aren't keeping up. Not every precancerous melanoma turns into something malignant. But at the moment, we don't have good ways of figuring out which direction a dodgy mole will head, meaning many people have medical interventions needlessly, not to mention the anxiety that goes along with a melanoma diagnosis. David Whiteman has been tracking the data on melanoma, and he joined me earlier.
2: That's my pleasure.
0: It's a bit of a theme on The Health Report, this idea of walking the line between screening and early detection of things and overdiagnosis. How does this present when we're talking about skin cancer?
2: The challenge is working out which spots on the skin are the really nasty ones, the potentially lethal melanomas, from those that run a more benign course. And at the moment we have to treat everything that looks like a melanoma as a melanoma. And the challenge with that is that we're now discovering that some of these things that we remove and take off may be not as dangerous as we first thought.
0: What's the problem with taking them off though?
2: As we learn that more and more of these melanomas, so called, are being excised, what that means is that people are incurring a um, physical cost. They're having an excision that may have been unnecessary. They get a psychological cost that people are told they have a diagnosis of a potentially fatal cancer that can have implications for their work and their recreation and insurance and things like that. So people carry a psychological harm. They're out of pocket as well. So when you add it up across the whole population, it can be an extra burden that's placed on people and society that if we had better diagnostic tools, we could reduce that or avoid it entirely
0: your recent paper is looking at the difference between in situ melanoma so the ones that are kind of sitting in the skin versus invasive the ones that are going to turn into something really bad news and the idea before was that the in situ one probably would progress but you're saying it doesn't always how do you tell the difference
2: that's exactly what we did find that historically our pathology teaching has been that melanomas that are detected early and are in situ that is in the in the very top layer of the skin cells that those ultimately are destined to continue to acquire mutations and become more dangerous. But what we did in our research was to track the rates at which these different types of melanomas are being diagnosed. And what we found is that particularly in the last two decades in Queensland, there's been a very steep rise in the rate of detection of these in situ melanomas. And the other thing that we found was that on average, people are older when they're diagnosed with these things. So it means that they've likely had them on their skin for a very long time and they have not turned into an invasive melanoma. So it's pointing in this direction that we're detecting things that are just sitting there and not causing harm and as I said before the problem with that is once you start excising lots of things from the skin there are physical and psychological harms from doing that Um, and you may not ultimately be benefiting patients so how do we maximize our ability to find the lethal and potentially lethal melanomas from those that are destined to be indolent and, and run a very slow
3: course.
0: What's the implication here for someone who's listening to it going, well, I thought I was meant to be having my skin check every couple of years. I've been trying to avoid ending up with a cancer. Is it that doctors should be taking more of a wait and see approach or is there some other sort of way of approaching this?
2: I wouldn't want anyone to change what they're currently doing. At at the present time, we are doing what you have to do. If you see something suspicious, we have to take it off. What this finding does is it, it stimulates those of us in the research world to say, well, can we do better? Can we get better diagnostic tools, better imaging, better cell sampling? And what other tricks in our toolkit can we employ to try and help doctors? and patients discriminate between good prognosis and bad prognosis melanomas. At the current point where we are right now in 2022, we have to keep doing what we're doing. No doctor could leave a suspicious lesion on the skin and just watch it, and and that would be not defensible. So no change to current settings, but a, a sort of cry for researchers who are already doing this is to really focus our attention on trying to work out, are there better ways of discriminating between these different classes of melanoma?
0: Because what sits behind this is other research that you were involved in that we actually covered as well a couple of months ago, saying if you're projecting out globally, the incidence of melanoma is set to explode in the next couple of decades, and we really, our current health system isn't equipped to handle that volume. So is this also another way of helping to make sure that we're focusing on the most urgent cases?
2: Well, it is, and it's also a reminder that these melanomas in particular are highly preventable. We know that exposing the skin to the sun is the primary mechanism through which melanomas are formed in early life and sets up the state for developing melanomas in middle age and older age. So it's, it's another reminder as well, as if we needed one, that primary prevention plays a really strong role here. And that means... Slip, slop, slap, it means avoiding unnecessary UV exposure, you know, in the middle of the day and in on work and in recreation. So doing everything we can to reduce these melanomas from forming in the first place, but then if we can't prevent them outright, then picking them up early is still by far preferable to presenting late. So I wouldn't want any listeners thinking that we're saying, don't get your skin checked. We're not saying that. We're just saying we need to find better ways of helping everybody work out which are the good and bad spots on the skin.
0: Where do we go from here?
2: There's lots of groups trying to uh, solve this kind of problem. People are, are looking at different ways of imaging the skin, You know, looking at using infrared technology and, and other non-harmful, non-invasive ways of peering into the skin and beneath these lesions on the skin to try and see you know, just where they sit and what their behavior looks like. People are looking at sampling different cells, trying to look at mutation and genetic profiles of skin cells without causing harm. So there's lots of different possible approaches to solving this problem. We don't yet know which is the best, and it might incorporate facets of all of these different technologies. It's a rapidly moving space, and I, I'm hopeful that in the foreseeable future, we'll have better technologies for helping us work out which are the good ones and which are the bad ones.
0: You'll have to keep us posted. David, thanks so much for joining us.
2: That's my pleasure. Thank you.
0: Professor David Whiteman is a cancer epidemiologist at QIMR Berghofer, and this is The Health Report.
1: Heart specialists should think more about the psychological health of their patients because poor mental health could be one of the causes of their heart condition. That's the conclusion from a group of Melbourne clinicians and researchers. Take atrial fibrillation, for example. Atrial fibrillation, or AF, is an underdiagnosed abnormality of your heart rhythm. It can cause breathlessness, palpitations, fatigue, and can even increase the risk of a stroke. Atrial fibrillation is becoming commoner and there are many causes from high blood pressure to blocked coronary arteries, to post heart surgery, to congenital defects in the heart to excessive alcohol consumption. But despite the long list, there are still some people in whom the cause may not be solely physical but psychological, particularly when it comes to stress. And if stress is a component, then one low-tech treatment might be able to assist. Liz Williams was a clinical nurse consultant before becoming a yoga practitioner. She holds workshops for people who live with problems like atrial fibrillation.
4: There are mechanisms that they themselves can use to really help with that dreadful fear that they get when they have a episode of AF. In yoga, we start to work on making sure that they understand there are many breathing practices that we can use to reduce that sympathetic nervous system stimulus, but also reducing their peripheral resistance with relaxation techniques, of which there are many in yoga, will also help. But overall, getting people in yoga to start to become aware, start to self-assess what may be setting off When do they start to feel the sympathetic nervous system start to rise, giving them some practices that they can do at any time so that they can slowly start to work out situations that are causing stress in their life and what they can do about it to just slowly reduce it. And that also helps with their quality of life.
1: Liz Williams. Professor Peter Kissler is head of clinical electrophysiology research at the Baker Heart and Diabetes Institute in Melbourne and was one of the authors on this paper on atrial fibrillation and stress. Welcome to The Health Report.
5: Thanks very much, Norman.
1: Now, the subtitle for your paper is A Two-Way Street. And what Liz was talking about there was two, th- two things, actually, was the two-way street. One is if you're getting these palpitations, you get stressed and that makes things worse. But the other is that stress may actually cause the atrial fibrillation. Well, let's start with that. What evidence is there that stress can cause atrial fibrillation? Because I think most cardiologists have resisted this idea and thought it was a myth.
5: Yeah, I think that we've been aware of the relationship around stress and cardiovascular disease for a long time. I was actually having a look at a paper published in 1975, in fact, uh, that Looked at the relationship between um, stress and hypertension, and looked at yoga to reduce um, blood pressure. I suppose the challenge in medicine is is finding an accurate tool to measure stress, and I think that's part of the reason why um, it, it's been resisted um, somewhat.
1: But so, what's the mechanism then? So you've got this it's... arrhythmia. I mean, the atrial fibrillation is the top of your heart kind of quivers and you don't get coherent messages going to the bottom of your heart and therefore the heart beats, can be beat quite fast and irregularly. Um, why would stress induce that?
5: So I, I suppose just firstly to define stress, essentially it's the perception that there are internal or external demands that exceed one's um, ability to, to cope. And I suppose we can think about um, acute stress and that classic flight fright response so if we're startled in some way or stressed it stimulates what's called our sympathetic nervous system um, to react and and part of the way it reacts is it actually increases heart rate dilates our pupils we breathe faster um, we get a little bit sweaty so that's the sort of acute stress response and just that stimulus um, can be enough to trigger arrhythmias so it actually also, um, increases uh, the thickness of the blood. It's, it um, modifies the um, immune capacity of the body. Um, so there's a, there's a whole host of ways. And then the chronic stress element actually leads to poor lifestyle um, choices. And we think that's the other way that this is where you feel out and, of control
1: of your life. And exactly, and under you don't pressure.
5: exercise, you don't sleep, you make poor diet choices, you gain weight, and that certainly feeds into AF
1: and high blood pressure. And is it the cause of? I mean, so so you would say that this needs to be listed as a cause. Now, if it's a cause, does stress reduction work in controlling atrial fibrillation? Because I mean, yeah, basically, so, you electrophysiologists are into some very invasive treatments, burning the pulmonary yeah. vein and the arch and the atrium with. All, you know, anyway, we won't go into that on this interview. But you know, does it save you some of these invasive treatments?
5: Well, there's been one study actually from nearly 10 years ago where they took just under 50 people um, and they followed them for three months and then got them to do uh, yoga uh, for three months and they actually showed a reduction in number of AF episodes and like, um, uh, like our yoga instructor was talking about, also the coping with the symptoms of AF um, was reduced but interestingly overall heart rate came down a little bit blood pressure came down a little bit so that sort of speaks to some of the mechanisms through which you know relaxation techniques and yoga might be able to work by modifying this sort of involuntary or autonomic nervous system
1: and implying what implicit in what you're saying is that even if it's not the cause the anxiety that could be provoked by sudden palpitations could make it worse
5: Absolutely. Um, you know, a lot of the time we just reassure people that they don't need to call an ambulance and come into the emergency department because they're having an episode of palpitations.
1: Um, so they go into one of these relaxation modes. Now, your your advice for cardiologists is to ask questions about people's psychological health. Yeah, one of the
5: other points of this this review was really, I think as cardiologists, sometimes we focus too much on the physical symptoms that you Um, described in the introduction and don't ask enough about anxiety and depression. And and when we actually looked at this in a systematic way, one in three people had significant anxiety and depression and actually 20% of people expressed suicidal ideation in the context of their atrial fibrillation. And, you know, by just actively um, addressing these issues and and by people better understanding their condition, um, you know, can allay a lot of these feelings.
1: And if you're a patient, you shouldn't feel defensive that the cardiologist thinks it's all in your head. No, not at all. It's in your heart as well. Basically, it's all one. Look, Peter, thanks for joining us. That's a pleasure, Norman. Thanks for having me. Professor Peter Kistler is head of electrophysiology at the Alfred Hospital in Melbourne and also head of uh, electrophysiology research at the Baker Institute, which is just next door to the Alfred. Now, a similar story may be playing out with stroke risk. A recent paper from the UK has confirmed other observations that while the risk of stroke has fallen in the over 55s, it's going up in younger people, at least in Anglo populations. There's also another study of whether there's value in holding open your brain arteries with stents if you've had a stroke. Here to comment on both studies is stroke clinician and researcher Professor Mark Parsons. Welcome back to The Health Report, Mark.
6: Thanks, Norman.
1: What did this British study do?
6: Yeah, it's fascinating. It, it, it's actually one of the mm, longest uh, population-based studies of, of stroke uh, that's, that's in the world, basically. So they basically follow up the whole Oxfordshire population, which is a, uh, a touch under 100,000, not not that many people, but the beauty of it is, is that
4: there's
6: a pretty uh, strong, almost complete follow-up of all people in that cohort that have had strokes, which is not really possible to do in larger cities or populations. So they've got really accurate data on stroke rates over time. Um, and, and the group's um, run by Peter Rothwell, who's one of the world's leading epidemiologists in this area.
1: And so they found that it, success in the over 55s and it's going up um, in the younger people. Did they? What, what's the reason for that? Because they're not the only people yeah. to have found that.
6: Correct. So yes, yeah, so there, there are studies in the U.S. and Denmark and and other countries that possibly are not as as rigorous as this study. This is probably the benchmark study that we've we've seen so far, and it confirms some of the other population-based studies that have suggested this fascinating. Um, perhaps not fascinating for the people that have a stroke but fascinating to us that and why, why are people under 55 having more stroke and people over 55 having less and there are a number of factors involved but I think partly in the older population we're much better at controlling the traditional risk factors for stroke and heart attack which overlap including particularly high blood pressure but it looks like in the younger population there are other risk factors that are emerging that, that um might be relevant that aren't considered traditional respect stress, which you, obviously we just talking about with your previous guest, and um, the, the the study showed that the other fascinating thing, apart from the increased stroke in younger people, it was actually people of of higher um, professional um, working. Standards so that so these were people in professional and managerial positions had had significantly increased rates of stroke compared to people that are in more manual labour. Um, Just positions, the opposite from is, what you'd
1: expect, given exactly that you've got the health gap um, it, it, nor- normally.
6: It, yes, Could except it, that perhaps yeah that, that yeah these people are probably under more stress at work and they certainly exercise less than people in uh, in in more more manual labour positions.
1: It could also be that we're asking general practitioners to focus on the over 50s and do their absolute risk scores, yes. what's your chances of having a heart attack or a stroke in the next five years, and miss the fact that if you're younger and your blood pressure is up a bit and your cholesterol's up a bit, you are actually at risk, but nobody's really focusing on that. Hey,
6: that's, that may be part of the explanation, Norman, but the, the authors actually looked at that and found that, um, that hypertension um, in the patients that had stroke under 55 was higher than the rest of the population, but it didn't explain this, the, the overall increase. So there, there, there must be something else going on.
1: So it's another message here before we move on to the next study, because we're running out of time. Is the message here is, again, for doctors to think about the psychological and social situation of the person in front of them.
6: Absolutely. I'd have to say, listening to Professor Kisler, neurologists are actually generally pretty attuned to the psychological health of their patients. But it, it, sometimes when you ask about that, it's not always met with um,
1: with joy uh, because they think uh, so, gonna, it's all my exactly. head, doctor. So yeah.
6: I, I think there's education ne- needed for the, the general population as well, not just right. physicians. It's not, yeah. a, it's not
1: a negative comment. Now, just briefly, and this is in your lane because you're an interventional yes. neurologist. You like sticking in catheters and removing clots but, and things like that. This was a study of stents versus medical therapy in in people who'd already had a, a, a small stroke and they found no benefit. I'm not sure you necessarily agree with the findings.
6: Uh, it, it wasn't. Firstly, I actually don't stick to catheters, you know, in, I, I, but I am a, a, a neurologist that treats acute stroke patients and works very closely with lots of interventional neurologists and, and, and radiologists. Um, but and yes, and we stick catheters into lots of our stroke patients. But typically, um, we 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 mostly stick catheters into our patients when they're having an acute stroke in the first twenty four hours. And uh, we can talk more about that. But the, the current study that you're talking about was looking at, at patients, for, yeah, so more than three weeks after their stroke, and and it's it's an it's an interesting, it's a it's a fascinating area because, uh, and I didn't talk about this in the last study, but the Oxfordshire study was almost exclusively a, a white Anglo-Saxon population, so we don't. Really have as much data on on Asian and and African American descent and, and other ethnic populations in terms of stroke incidence. And but the fascinating thing about um, patients that uh, were enrolled in this study is that they were nearly all of um, Chinese it was
1: a descent. Chinese study, yeah.
6: Yes, because and, and the rate of um, so the, the condition that that is being treated in in this study is we call it ICAT, intracranial atherosclerotic disease. And that's another fascinating um, racial difference that we see in stroke is that in Caucasians, most atherosclerosis, so hardening, narrowing of the it's arteries in the is in the neck. But in, in Asian and subcontinental people, it's inside the brain, so so-called ICAD. so called ICAT. So it's quite a different uh, disease and causes different types of stroke. Um, and the problem, I guess, with stent- with stenting, and so, so what that is, is I mean, these arteries actually are relatively small, um, under five millimeters in diameter, sometimes down to two millimeters. So you can imagine, that sticking a catheter in, uh, is somewhat risky. And um, we talked about stress in patients before; it's pretty stressful for the interventionalist because there's a there's a reasonable risk of, of Perforating the artery when they stick these catheters in because they blow up the balloon to, to dilate the stenosis from the atherosclerosis.
1: So the focus should be on the acute stroke, getting that clot out, and removing, yes. removing the clot and then uh, really focusing on getting your blood pressure down and your
6: absolutely risk yep. yeah
1: Mark, thank yeah. you so much for joining us yet again.
6: Thanks, Norman, all of us.
1: Professor Mark Parsons is a stroke clinician and researcher at the universities of New South Wales and Melbourne.
0: And there are a few things in life that are just inevitable. Death, taxes, the genes you're born with. At least that's been the case for pretty much every generation up until now. Gene therapies have the potential to change the trajectory of disease. And I've been talking to two people on the front line of that shift. Until about three years ago, Robert Lambeth had a disease that was incurable. I mean, it was literally in his genes.
7: Not as a newborn, but yes, very, very young when I sort of had my first bleed. Three, I think it might have been for me back in back in the early 80s. That was a long time ago now.
0: When he was born, he inherited a certain recessive gene that stopped his body from producing one of the essential factors you need for your blood to clot
7: bleeding internally into my major weight-bearing joints, so ankles and knees. And as I sort of got older, I'd have more sort of odd bleeding into muscles in my legs and parts of my stomach and those sorts of things. So it was um, a little bit more serious when you have muscle, large muscle bleeds. The pressure of the bleeding can affect your organs. So that's quite serious.
0: Managing Haemophilia A is miles easier than it was a couple of decades ago. When he was little, Robert needed intravenous injections of his missing clotting factor given in a hospital. When he got older, he didn't need to go to hospital anymore. Regular injections of the clotting factor were a feature of his life all the way through into his 30s. But not anymore.
3: We dream of cures in gene therapy but hesitate to use the word (laughs) at my hospital.
0: For decades, John Rasco has been chasing ways to change people's fates.
3: For the last 20 years plus, we've been doing clinical trials using viral vectors to transfer a gene into humans for a therapeutic purpose.
0: Professor Rasco is a haematologist and pathologist who spent much of his career studying genes, stem cells, and basically how to hack processes inside the human body. And he's one of many scientists around the world trying to figure out ways of swapping out disease-causing genes in a way that, in time, could be used for pretty much any genetic disease.
3: When we reflect on rare diseases, it's often worth remarking and reminding ourselves that rare diseases, of course, by definition are rare, usually less than one in five or 10,000 people. But collectively, rare diseases are very common when you add them all up, because there are many thousands of them, lead to a burden of disease such as the commonality of diabetes or even some forms of cancer. So the problem is that of all the rare diseases, which some people say are more than 4,000 affecting humans, 80% of those rare diseases have a genetic basis. And of those diseases, only 5% have a specific therapy so this is an incredible unmet need in human health.
0: And the solution he and his colleagues have come up with might sound a bit familiar. It works in a similar way to the COVID vaccine made by AstraZeneca. It uses a harmless virus to take a genetic message into the body.
3: And that vector system is used to then ferry that genetic payload intravenously to the liver where it takes up residence and hopefully after a single injection corrects that person's genetic abnormality for the rest of their life. It's unimaginable, but a single injection can alter the course of a genetic disease that would otherwise affect a person from birth
0: to death. Robert was part of the clinical trial Professor Rasco was involved in, testing the gene therapy.
7: It would be three years ago now in May 2019 when I had that one single dose of the good stuff and then that clearly worked its magic and now I'm growing my own Factor 8 I've had one breakthrough bleed... Gene therapy for me, Tegan, has been quite revolutionary. So from a position of having 0.5% of a percent of clotting factor in my blood, but I'm now growing my own factor eight in my liver, and I'm at about 15% clotting factor, which is an extraordinary growth.
0: In August, Europe granted conditional approval for a haemophilia A therapy like the one Robert received. It hasn't been approved in Australia yet, Although we do use gene therapy for other conditions like spinal muscular atrophy and genetic causes of blindness.
3: We are only at the very start of this genetic revolution. There are thousands of genetic diseases that affect humans. And we've only just started scratching the surface of where we can go with these gene based therapeutics.
0: Because Robert got the gene therapy as an adult, he's still living with the damage Haemophilia A had already done to his body but that doesn't mean it hasn't been transformative.
7: I can just do so much more. I can be out there doing everything that I love at work and at play and going to the gym without fear of having a micro bleed the next day and being cross and crotchety and painful and grumpy at work and then it turning into a more major bleed and then having to go and seek therapy, which means even more downtime. The sooner that we could roll out some gene therapy for younger people would be great.
0: Robert Lamberth, who received gene therapy for Haemophilia A, finishing us off there. And we also heard from Professor John Rasco from Royal Prince Alfred Hospital and the Centenary Institute. At the University of
1: Sydney, I mean, it's interesting how things have advanced there, Tegan. I mean, a few years ago, not so long ago, gene therapy was could have been quite toxic because of the virus that they were using to carry the the gene in. And you've got to hit the target; it can't be wasteful. And sometimes the virus did more harm you know did did harm in its own right. So it's taken them a long time to get that right. But the potential, Mm -hmm. as John Rasko said, is huge, and it goes from cancer through to these uh, con- these inborn errors that you get, such as hemophilia A. Mm. So that's it for the health report from this week. From me, Norman Swan, it's bye till next time.
0: And me, Tegan Taylor, it's bye from me too. See you next time. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.